Honestly, when you look at the language that conservative Christians have been using for a very long time, love is not at the center of that language, certainly not at the center of their political discourse. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. We're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Kristen Dumay. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited we connected. Thank you for saying yes and being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So before we dive into our topic today, which is one that I've been very excited to get into, can you give a little bit about yourself and the work that you do for our listeners? Sure. I am a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University, and I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home community. Uh, I went off to study American religious history at the University of Notre Dame, and it was there that I first encountered the study of gender, and it completely changed my life and complete, uh, changed the direction of my scholarship. So my first book was on the history of Christian feminism and particularly connections with uh, sexuality and anti-trafficking activism in the 19th century. And then my second book is Jesus and John Wayne, and it picks up uh, with 20th century conversations around masculinity and militarism, particularly within white evangelicalism. Perfect setup for exactly where we're going. Uh, We are discussing that book, Jesus and John Wayne, which if our listeners haven't grabbed it yet, it's a phenomenal read. We can't recommend it enough. Uh, But, you know, similar to your story, uh, similar to my own, you know, the Christianity that we were introduced to had this rugged masculinity attached to it. Uh, It sort of demanded a stoicism and a strict adherence to just being the best that we can. Why do you think, Kristen, that we have replaced the Jesus that we read about within the Bible with with sort of this cowboy, in essence, this let's just do the best that we can? Oh, the why question. Surprisingly, I don't get that question very often. It's I, I, I'm more about the how. Uh, so I think why could be answered in, in a couple of different ways, at least one of which I'm not very equipped to do. And that's that's the psychological aspect I found in writing this book as a historian. From time to time, I felt like I was running up against the limits of kind of historical inquiry and was ready to pass the baton to psychologists. Uh, but so I'll, I'll take a stab at that first, then go into historical territory. Uh, You know, I think that there's something really satisfying in uh, being told that you're powerful and that you um, that your anger is righteous. And uh, if you feel vulnerable to turn that vulnerability into anger, uh, which, again, is a more powerful feeling. And so I think that there is there is something on the individual level that um, that is at play here. I I think, too, that the model of um, uh, Christ that I understand in the in the Gospels is one really of divesting oneself of power. 
And that is to me, the radical nature of the Christian religion, the, the faith that I have been drawn to, but uh, it's a really hard ideal to live up to, right? It goes against human nature. It, it goes against kind of our, 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 our impulses. And so I think that personally, it's, it's just really hard to, to live into that. It, it, it is a radical gospel of, of divesting of power. Uh, so that's kind of the psychological, personal uh, side of things, but then historically, we can see how this uh, ideology was developed over time. It was developed in the context of the Cold War when uh, conservative Christians in particular, along with other Americans, but conservative Christians were right at the forefront of opposing communism uh, because communism they thought was anti-God, anti-family and anti-American. And so this kind of militant posture, a militant posture in which the man, the Christian man, was uh, invested with this uh, responsibility to protect faith, family, and nation uh, at all uh, at all costs, uh, and to use violence when necessary, kind of preemptive violence. That that was right at the um, at the core of the formation of, of white evangelical identity in the post-World War II era. And so, historically, you can see that come together. You can see that strengthened through the Vietnam era. And you can continue to see that evolve and, uh, and get amplified in the, the post 9-11 era. So there's a historical explanation. And then I think there's also this personal dynamic. Yeah, it's very interesting. And there are cultural icons that pop up all the time, you know, especially in our modern context, we get we get them every weekend. Uh, you know, but about 70 years ago, we got the character of John Wayne. Yeah. Uh, you know, in 1945, Marian Morrison became the icon for setting things right, specifically within America. Yes. Do you think that that was, you know, almost a layup in terms to pair with the Christianity of the day to just say, well, there's morality within the individual, there's morality on the screen, and and we have morality, and so we're going to identify ourselves with that badass cowboy? <laughs> yeah, you know, this, this cowboy motif, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's nostalgic at its heart. It's um, thoroughly masculine and thoroughly white. Um, the ideal, like actual cowboys were, you know, many people of color were cowboys too, but that's not the, the mythical ideal that, that has formed in, in American consciousness. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's tapping into a longer history of, of individualism, of, uh, frankly, white supremacy in, in certain cases of, uh, you know, of violence and a kind of righteous violence. And, and yeah, in the, in the 1940s, when it kind of reasserts itself, that's when we see it, it combining with American identity in, in kind of distinctive ways, and then really, really becoming a, 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 a popular ideal in the late forties and then through the sixties really, and beyond. Uh, and, and again, this is, this overlaps with the cold war era. So it's, it's uniquely American. You know, the cowboy is our brand. That's, you know, you go, I, I spent some time in Germany when I was uh, younger and yeah, you know, they, they, when they think of the Americans, it was, it was, it was cowboys, right? That's, that's, that's the American kind of image. And, and we've lived into that in many ways. And, and so there's a kind of um, frontier morality that goes along with that, uh, which is, 
fine or not fine, but then when it becomes intertwined with American Christianity, I think that's when we can see some really um, harmful consequences. And, and that certainly is what we have seen over the last half century. You know, specifically with American Christianity, you know, where does that term come from? Like, why do we call it Christian American? Um, uh, you know, yeah. like uh, around the world, I have friends all over the globe. Nobody necessarily calls themselves Asian Christians. No one necessarily mm -hmm. says German Christians, but we've got this identity and it does have sort of a subculture within it as Christian Americans. Where do you think that that comes from? Well, you know, technically there used to be a German Christian movement <laughs> under under Hitler. So uh, there's there's precedent for that. And uh, it is actually interesting to explore some of the, the similarities between that and what we see in terms of contemporary American Christian nationalism. But this idea of Christian America has a long history. I mean, you can go back to the Puritans who uh, in, in their mind, right, their, their American experiment was a thoroughly Christian one. They were to be a city upon a hill and to provide a model to the other nations. And they were trying to structure their society and their families in ways that were deeply and distinctively Christian. Of course, Puritans weren't the only uh, <laughs> settlers in America and weren't the only Americans, but, but you can go, you know, find expressions of this ideal uh, way back in American history. But then you can you can find uh, variation uh, over over the centuries. So that one of the things I point out in my book is that even in the early 20th century, many conservative Protestants were resistant to the idea of America being a distinctively Christian nation because many conservative Protestants really centered on kind of uh, you know, personal conversion experiences at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And a nation didn't have a soul. And they looked around them and saw the nation was doing a lot of things that weren't particularly Christian, uh, wasn't particularly mo a moral nation. And so why on earth would you, would you call America a Christian nation? It's kind of hard for us to imagine now because conservatives have, have widely, conservative Christians have widely embraced this concept of America as a Christian nation. Um, but that really comes into play in the mid-century, uh, mid-20th century. And, and that's when we see conservative Christians, again, against the backdrop of the Cold War, uh, rallying to this idea that America was founded as a Christian nation. Now, historians, including Christian historians, have really complicated this, this myth of the Christian America at its founding, uh, but uh, they haven't made much headway in terms of disrupting this, this uh, 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 deeply held conviction in conservative circles. And, um, and then they use that idea of America as being founded as a Christian nation to lament you know, whatever declension narrative they've, they've identified to lament the loss of that Christian identity. There's so belief in a Christian America is usually connected with the idea that something has gone terribly wrong, that Christians have been displaced from centers of power that they are entitled to, and that God will bless America if Christians, by which they mean conservative white Christians, generally, if Christians can 
retake control of America and redirect Christ, uh, America uh, in, you know, in Christian and moral ways as they understand them. And uh, what, what was interesting for me here, too, is to, to see for for many conservative Christians, the 1960s is the uh, the decade that they point to when things really went wrong. <laughs> so things are going OK. Um, for Christian America until the 1960s. And that's important to realize. I mean, the 60s, you have feminism, you have uh, the anti-war movement, uh, you know, sexual liberation and so on, but you also have the civil rights movement. And that's why I think it's important when we think of this uh, idea of Christian America that uh, we acknowledge kind of the white racial identity that is a part of this this commitment, that the narrative that America was once a great Christian nation and then everything went bad in the 1960s really only makes sense if you are a white Christian. And uh, and I think that's worth um, pointing out as well, because it's rarely stated explicitly, but it's it's important to to recognize. Yeah, it's powerful to understand the environment of those comments, because if you just focus on the comments, then all you're doing is recognizing, quote, an oppressed people. But mm-hmm. if you put it in the context, that totally changes the the delivery and the message. Exactly. Right. Look at the history. Look at what was happening around it. Look at what they were responding to. And, and really, what did they mean by this? What did it mean to make America a Christian nation again, to reclaim that? Uh, what did it mean to make America great again? Because that language, uh, long before uh, Trump was on the political horizon, was also a part of this Christian nationalist uh, language. Great segue, you know, fast forwarding a bit to another leader who's not politically correct and, you know, says just what needs to be said and does what needs to be done, Donald Trump. You know, a lot within the Christian camp saw him as a fulfillment. Uh, And yet his values were patriarchy and authoritarian rule, aggressive foreign policy. There's a fear of Islam, an ambivalence to social justice, uh, you know, even the LGBTQ community. And even though he's not in office anymore, his effects, I think, will be long lasting. Kristen, for a people supposedly defined by love, what do you think, you know, what's your insight on why the Christian movement of today took the bait of Donald Trump? You know, why was he the savior in in essence? Yeah, because uh, honestly, when you look at the language that conservative Christians have been using for a very long time, love is not at the center of that language, certainly not at the center of their political discourse. When you look at family values politics and take a careful look at that, right? Because because the, the conflicts for many seem to be around Donald Trump. You know, how could family values Christians, family values conservatives support a man like Donald Trump? Uh, But if you look to the history, you can understand uh, what family values actually entails. And uh, what I found is at the heart of family values politics is white patriarchal power, reinforcing white patriarchal power across the board. And it comes out in many different guises. And and really, that's one of the the themes of this book. And if you locate white patriarchal power at the center of family values politics, then it's not this this conflict, not much of a conflict at, at any rate, between evangelicals who have long 
supported and defended white patriarchal power, uh, that they would support and defend somebody like Donald Trump. But this is also um, linked up with a, a, a militancy within evangelicalism, a culture wars militancy, right? That, that, that again, kind of grew up during the Cold War era because uh, Christian America had to be defended against the communist threat abroad, but also against domestic threats at home, against liberalism, against feminism, against secular humanism. And so there, there was this um, posture of defensiveness and then the best defense was an aggressive offense. And, and so this us versus them militancy really does come to frame the values of conservative uh, evangelicals with respect to politics, but also with respect to their faith itself. And this, this uh, kind of militancy, us versus them mentality fits perfectly with an aggressive uh, conception of Christian manhood because they believe in gender difference and they believe that God has assigned men the role of protector. And in these trying times, right, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of domestic uh, threats to Christian morality, uh, we need aggressive defenders. We need testosterone-fueled protectors. And that is precisely what God designed men to be. So then along comes Donald Trump. And uh, he comes along after uh, eight years of Barack Obama's presidency when conservative evangelical leaders had really been fueling like, this fear, this sense of urgency, this sense of, uh, you know, that they were going to be um, canceled, that they were going to be marginalized. And, um, and the threat was, was really amped up. Donald Trump waltzes in and he's in some ways the perfect warrior, be, precisely because he has not in any way been formed by traditional Christian virtues, right? Of self-control, of love, peace, patience, not at all. And, and so he's better than the Christian men at being this ruthless protector and defender of Christianity, uh, which is exactly what he promises to be. He is unrestrained and precisely because he's not Christian, he's he's the best leader uh, uh, for the, this moment. Um, and, and that's where too, you can see kind of similarities with, with the John Wayne motif. John Wayne too was not a conservative evangelical, uh, did not live according to you know, many Christian values. And yet um, that's, that's kind of what they loved about him. Uh, he was rugged, he was gonna do what needed to be done. And, and he, was, he was the man for the job. that we, you know, I say we as a white male, do you think that white males attach themselves to that motif because of a sense of powerlessness within their own life? I think that in, in some cases, you know, I, I have a couple of interviews in the book that uh, suggest as much that there's something really appealing to men, to young men in particular, maybe, uh, who feel a lack of power, um, to be told you are powerful. You have this, you know, you have this, this call, uh, you need to step up and answer that call. Um, but I would also want to ask, you know, where 
men get the sense that they lack this power. Uh, that, you know, that also is perhaps a, a kind of uh, culturally induced feeling of powerlessness that they are, that they feel entitled to uh, have more power, that they feel like the power that they do have is insufficient or even, you know, how they define power. What does, what does power look like? Um, and, and who has shaped those ideas for you? So I think that, yes, uh, you know, white men, And we can talk about how um, white masculinity has been defined and how that then shapes uh, white men today. And uh, rather than taking for granted that, uh, you know, constructions of power as, as natural or organic, or, you know, even defining that men don't have power or need more power, you know, how is that defined? What is the appropriate amount of power? What does that look like? And in what ways do we understand power as gendered and all of these things how are we setting men up perhaps for feelings of powerlessness how are we setting men up for feelings of insufficiency i think that's one of the things that struck me in terms of uh both men that i interviewed when writing this book and the response of many men uh evangelical men upon reading it where they confessed that they felt like second class men and second class christians Precisely because of this ideology, you know, it was being held up. You need to on your weekends, go climb, you know, do rock climbing and you need to, uh, you know, you need to be tough and rugged and, and, you know, go, uh, you know, uh, you need to be a warrior. And, and for a lot of men, it's like not really their thing. And they, they would maybe prefer rather than a wilderness retreat to, you know, go to the art museum over the weekend. Um, but they were told that this is, this is a problem. This is your problem and that this is not Christian. And so I think in some ways, this, this ideology generated a lot of feelings of insufficiency simply because it didn't fit with, uh, the way many men were wired and, and understood themselves. Now, the consequences of this are not just limited to a fractured nation, as we're seeing. It's not just limited to a fractured church, which we'll get into in just a second, but I think it leads to a fractured faith. Yeah. One that now believes it's under attack all the time. What effect does this mentality have on our spirituality and our, our journeys of faith? Mm. I mean, it is, it, it absolutely has affected the way people understand what it is to be a Christian, the posture that that American Christians often take uh, with respect to their neighbors, their communities, um, their their country, but also, you know, uh, those outside of our borders, because it it creates this sense of um, embattlement of anybody who is not with us, we have to assume is against us. And, um, and so it's this kind of protective enclave mentality that forms. Um, so don't trust people outside of our circles. Don't, don't trust even that church down the street, you know, in, in the case of Mark Driscoll and, and Mars Hill was, was one example, uh, but don't trust the media. Don't trust, you know, the liberals don't, don't trust her if she's a career woman. So there's just so much lack of trust rather than I think a posture that, that, uh, uh, I would 
argue is a more biblical posture of loving your neighbors as yourselves, of loving even your enemies, right? And that, again, is part of the radical identity of what it is to be a Christian, that that goes against human nature. Uh, But this ideology has made it very unpopular to... um, kind of put those values at the center of Christian identity. I mean, an example of this is how, you know, William Wallace, many, many of these writers suggest, um, especially William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, uh, is a much better model uh, of, of who Christ is than somebody like Mother Teresa or Mr. Rogers. These guys really don't like Mr. Rogers. And, um, and when you look at New Testament Christianity, I don't know, Mr. Rogers is on to something, I think. And um, but what this does, and this is part of the subtitle, the corrupted a faith part, is that by embracing this, this rugged and militant ideal of Christian manhood, they end up uh, reshaping Christianity itself. They they change the Jesus of the Gospels into this warrior Christ who has this bloody sword and is charging off into battle to slay his enemies. And that's the Christ they want to follow, which again, as a person of faith myself, you know, I, there's, there's a critique uh, underneath this history that I write, which is, um, yeah, I don't think you got that right. Now, Kristen, I've really enjoyed our conversation, but regardless of our political beliefs, we still need to function as a church. Mm-hmm. You know, given this fractured framework, how does the church, the political side of it, the social justice side of it, the conservative, the liberal, how does the John 17 church move in a more positive direction on this? How do we become more unified and handle this better? That is an incredibly hard question. Uh, and, you know, first of all, I just want to make sure that when we are imagining the church, we are imagining far more than just the white church and more than just the American church. Uh, and and so that is a starting point. And then who is the we? Um because we have many churches in this in this country, obviously, and uh, those of us who are actively involved in churches, you know, find ourselves in those spaces. And honestly, things are really difficult in those spaces right now. I hear from people every single day who are um, struggling in their local faith communities, in Christian organizations, because they feel these tensions. And and I think we need to be. Um, I think we need to be more open about what that looks like. We need to be more open about the way that power is being wielded to silence people, to coerce people. Uh, and uh, and we, we just, we need to acknowledge that this is happening. So, um, be, because what happens is I think in many communities right now, in many churches, there's not a lot of transparency and not a lot of honesty. People are afraid to say what they really think about theology, about social issues, about political issues, because they know that they could very easily lose their jobs if they do so. Uh, And I've spoken to many people who have. Uh, uh, They know that they could uh, lose their churches, lose their church communities. Many people are, are walking away from their church homes. Beth Moore just did this yesterday. Um, but people with, uh, you know, much lower profiles are doing this every single day. And, um, but many of these people are doing so very quietly. 
like after periods of struggle, they get pushed out. They, and then, and then there are calls for unity and, you know, calls for, uh, you're not disrupting the witness of the church. And a lot of people kind of walk away quietly and then try to put pieces back together on the other side. And, um, and so I think that, that we need to bring more attention to the divisions within churches rather than pretending like those divisions don't exist uh, because they do. And if we pretend that they don't, and if we continue to kind of cover up these deep divisions, then that just um, favors those who wield the power. And in many cases right now, uh, it is still um, more conservative leaning folks who wield the power um, because of donors, uh, because of uh, um, kind of longstanding uh, institutional reasons. And, and so we need to be um, we need to be open about what's going on. What that requires is that, you know, a willingness for people on both sides of this divide to acknowledge, you know, if we want to go John 17, that there is a broader unity despite these differences. Um, but then we need to seek that unity across these differences and not stifle the differences that exist and pretend that they don't. That's powerful, Kristen. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell our listeners how to connect with you online and where they can get the book? Sure. I am on Twitter at KK Dumez, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And also I have a Facebook author page also at KK Dumez, um, Kristen Kovas Dumez. And I have a website, KristenDumez.com, where I put a lot of my uh, writings and podcasts and things like that. Uh, the book you should be able to get anywhere. It's back in stock, so you can get it at your local bookstore. If they don't have it on their shelf, they can order it. And it's available at all online locations as well. Great. We'll throw it in the show notes. But again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram at dismantlepod or shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Bye.